Hello, this is Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Aren't you? Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. My first experience that I can recall being introduced to them was actually from the Lindsay Lohan version of The Parent Trap. There's a scene where she's driving through the city of London on her way to meet her mom for the first time. And they're playing Here Comes the Sun. It just stuck with me. And I think it's because the song itself just captures a feeling. And I don't think I even knew at the time that I saw it that I was like hearing the Beatles. Today's guest is Haley Orentia, an American singer and actress known for her role in the hit TV show, The Goldbergs. Born and raised in Texas, Orentia discovered her love of performing from the young age of nine years old, performing impromptu concerts in her bedroom. It wasn't long before she added songwriting and playing piano to her impressive list of talents, and by 14 years old, she launched her professional acting career. Arantia can currently be seen reprising her celebrated role as Erica Goldberg in ABC's long-standing sitcom, The Goldbergs. The show follows the hilarious and awkward lives of a colorful suburban family in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania in the 1980s. Arantia is a scene-stealer as Erica, the eldest Goldberg sibling who fans have watched transform from a socially awkward, nerdy high schooler to popular college-age beauty who drops out of school to form a band with her girlfriends. In the world of film, Orantia most recently starred in Amazon Lionsgate's holiday comedy, Christmas is Cancelled, alongside Dermot Mulrooney and Janelle Parrish. Orantia's other credits include a recurring role in School, a popular ABC spinoff of The Goldbergs, the independent feature film Cooper and the Castle Hills Gang, and God's Not Dead 2, where her original song, Silence You, was featured. In 2018, Orentia conducted her first successful headlining tour, the Strong, Sweet, and Southern Tour, playing in 22 cities across the United States. That same year, she also performed on three main stages at the renowned CMA Fest in Nashville, Tennessee. Over the years, she has supported numerous charitable causes. Orentia wrote the song, Who I Am, for the National Eating Disorders Association, and the song, Power of a Girl, for the Girl Scouts of the USA. Since 2007, she has served as an ambassador for the Texas Music Project, which raises awareness and funds for public schools. Welcome, Haley Arantia. 
I wonder if you could start by just telling me when you first began singing. Yeah. Wow. Um, so when I first started singing, it, it kind of happened in a slightly bizarre way, I guess. Um, I was riding in the car with a family friend and her son, who was about my age, and she was taking me back to the house and I was just singing along to the radio. Um, and she actually stopped the radio and was like, you have a really great voice. And I'm like nine years old. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And she's like, you have to sing for your parents when you get home. And I was like, okay. So we get back to the house and, you know, she encouraged me to sing something. And I don't know why, but the first thing I did was sing an acapella version of Amazing Grace. And, you know, they thought like, oh, you, you've got something there. Like, do you want to start taking classes? And cause I didn't have any other like hobby. I didn't really play sports. Um, you know, I was also nine. So <laughs> I was kind of first finding things I was interested in. And I said, sure. So I started taking, you know, music classes outside of school. I joined choir in school and it just slowly became like the thing I did. Um, the way that I think some kids would join football or something, but, um, it's kind of just all I've ever known. And, and that's just how it started. Would you say that prior to the car incident, as it will you know, now be known, uh, prior to the car incident, did you grow up in a musical family? Was it a musical household? Not necessarily. I mean, my mom has a pretty good voice and she would sing sometimes, but she wasn't, she wasn't like singing around the house a lot. Um, we didn't really have a ton of people that I, I think sang around the house, but I do, in looking back, um, my, let's see, on my dad's side, it would be his father, so my grandfather, and his brother, my great uncle, Jesse. Um, I guess growing up, they had been in a band together, like sort of mariachi style band. Um, and so they played guitar, but I wasn't around them a ton growing up. So if I had any like musical gene, I would say maybe it came from them or like my mom, but again, it was, it was not something that other than listening to music a lot together, it's not like we performed a lot as a family. So, um, it, is this, can you say the same for acting? Did you come by that in, in a kind of natural sense? How did, how did that part of your life develop? Yeah, that is also a weird story. <laughs> um, I feel like a lot of these I come like to find, I stumble upon by accident, if you will. Um, when I was, I guess, what, 14 years old, I had been at that point, you know, doing musical theater in school, um, you know, public school, and then extracurricular, there was this music school that I attended. Um, and through that sort of network of people eventually met a songwriter here who introduced me to a manager here. And I ended up meeting record labels by the age of 15, um, having really no idea what that was going to be like. And a lot of them recommended, um, you know, why don't you try to do the Disney channel thing where you do a TV show and they kind of like tie in a record deal and Hannah Montana was really big at the time. Um, and so I had zero interest in acting at that point in my life. I loved watching TV and movies, but I never looked at it and said, I want to do that. So I went back home and I, I actually found a, a school, an acting school in my hometown that happened to have taught a ton of Disney Channel stars from Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez. Um, so I just started taking classes and it was extremely difficult and disheartening because I really thought I was not very good. 
Um, I was never like admired in class by the teacher. Uh, so I was like, wow, I, my whole reasoning of getting into acting was because I was trying to make music work and it was not happening that way. Um, and then cut to what, four years later and I end up magically booking the Goldbergs and it's, we're now in our 10th year. So it kind of happens a little by accident, if you will, but I really have found a love for acting, especially being on the Goldbergs. Um, and being able to incorporate music into my character has been such a special thing as well. You know, I, I like both of these stories a lot because um, they are organic, right? And you, you even use the word accident. But <laughs> what's really cool about them is in both cases, when you discovered or, or, or realized that you were going to have an interest in those areas, that you went to school on them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. Like I, I never wanted to assume that I knew everything. I for sure, you know, there's a technique to a lot of it, but I think what's really cool about now being out of that kind of setting for so many years is I, I've taken certain things with me and I've left a lot there as well. And so as much as I was able to learn and study different techniques of singing or songwriting, or even types of acting and ways of getting into character, there's a lot that I'm able to kind of let go of and say, okay, while there is a technique and a way of maybe getting into it from the beginning, I'm also allowing myself the freedom of letting something come um, naturally and organically, because if it's not authentic and you're having to force it too much, then I think that in the world of, of art and entertainment, it, you kind of lose that magic. So it, as much as I am very grateful to the teachers I've had, I, I've learned what I take and what I leave. Well, and I'm not just saying this as a teacher, as a professor at a university. I'm saying it because I think it's 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 wonderful and it says a lot about you that when you realized you had a talent for these aspects of your life, you know, you went to school on it. And oh, yeah. uh, and, and as you just said, you know, you, you, you were educated in such a way that you knew what to keep and what not to keep. But um, it says a lot of good stuff about you. So, Thanks. <laughs> uh, going back then, when your when your mother was singing around the house, what kind of music did you guys listen to? This would have been, um, my gosh, what the late nineties, early early two thousands, more. Yeah, like I mean, I was born in ninety four, but I I would say a lot of my musical influence, obviously, the the early two thousands. I loved pop music, so just on my own accord, listening to like Radio Disney, I was getting the top one hundred. Um, but what really influenced me as a vocalist was a lot of what my mom listened to. And that was Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, Luther Vandross, um, Brian McKnight, a lot of like soulful, big vocalists and even a little like seventies funk music. I love like my mom and I love confunction. Um, what else? <laughs> There's, I've had a very interesting mixed bag of like influences growing up. And then once I hit, I want to say it was like middle school, um, she introduced me to Ingrid Michaelson, the singer songwriter. And, and then eventually Sarah Bareilles who were like, Sarah Bareilles is probably my favorite artist of all time, but it, it's interesting because when people try to or ask me like, who are some of your influences? I'm, I'm grasping at very different genres. Um, and I think that's kind of like what has led me to this position I'm in now as an artist where I, I have a really hard time staying in a lane. 
Um, but it's because I like so many different things and I'm able, and I enjoy being able to sort of chameleon my way into different <laughs> genres. <laughs> so, um, growing up, it was a lot of like soulful singers, big vocalists, R and B influence. Um, and that's something that lately I've been trying to kind of tap back into. That's, that's interesting. And, and as you said, those are singers who, they create big songs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whitney Houston, I mean, their performances, you know, not one-offs, but performances, a lot of those singers. Um, and I, I can hear that in your work, certainly. Um, and of course, mm-hmm. one of the the songs that uh, really went viral for you, I guess, was Maybe I'm Amazed, right? That was from an episode of The Goldbergs. Oh, yeah. I, I've done so many songs on The Goldbergs now, I almost forget what ones I yeah, it's like, you're, it's like you're the It's like you're the resident interpreter of, of the great tunes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually, The Goldbergs has done a really great job of like introducing me to a lot of music I didn't know growing up because I didn't grow up in the 80s. And while I knew a lot of it, you know, there's bands like um, Rush that I've never even heard of that now I like have so much respect for. So it's I've done a lot of music on that show. But, yeah, I did cover Maybe I'm Amazed. And that's a big tune. In fact, it's the one that Paul McCartney has said more than once he would like to be remembered for. Oh, yeah. It should be the one that that goes down in history, and of course, it's right there on the cusp of the uh, of the end of the Beatles. How did you approach that tune? Oh man, um, I mean, with fear because <laughs> to try to touch anytime I try or have to cover a song on the show that's done by such iconic artists, it's a little like you know, I don't want to. I want to try to do it justice, but it's obviously going to have to be its own thing. Um, but I, I just think every time I go into having to do a cover with, with the Goldbergs, they typically like to keep us relatively close to the um, production like or, or a very dialed back bare version of what production it was just to keep it simple. Oftentimes it plays in the third act of the show where it's about coming together and kind of resolving the issues you've seen throughout the episode. So I, with this particular song, I just wanted to be able to to bring a lot of myself into it because, you know, it's you can't. I don't know. At the at the end of the day, it's like if they're going to give me a song to have to cover, I want to try to try to make it my own, but also do justice to what it was already. And I think it was really fun to be able to cover a song that was done by a, a man. Even like whenever we get to flip it on its head and have it be done by a girl. I think it's, it's, uh, cool being able to add that kind of tone, I guess. Um, I don't know. I just, I had fun with it. This was actually one of the songs that I remember going in the studio and not wanting to rip my hair out at the end of it. Cause there's been some songs that vocally there's a range or an area that like, it's a little hard for me or challenging and to get there. And for this one, I just remember like letting go and being able to just have fun with it. And thankfully it worked out. Well, it really comes through on the recording. And I, I see what you mean about tailoring the song to the production because your version of Tom Sawyer really works that way. The rush tune. Thanks. Yeah. I wish we were able to have more of a say in how it was produced because if it were, you know, my, uh, my job title, I would probably have more fun in trying to really turn it on its head and make it unique. But you know, for, for what it's supposed to be, I think it's, we do a, a good job of 
of just like trying to pay homage to that, that song and the 1980s era. So how did, tell us how the, the Goldbergs opportunity came about Hmm. Uh, because it's obviously been a defining moment so far. Yeah. Um, I remember I had come out to Los Angeles from Texas, I think two other times for pilot season. So I think the first time I was maybe 15 or 16. And then the next one, um, maybe when I was 17, but I did X factor when I was 17. So somewhere in there. (laughs) And then, um, right after the X factor was done, I went back to Texas and I thought, okay, I'm just going to try to go again and see what I can do at auditions and see if I can book anything. Um, and so I ended up coming out here with my dad and some family friends. And I remember the day that we were, we were pulling up to, to the house we were renting here in LA. Um, I had gotten the email saying, Hey, can you put yourself on tape for this show that at the time was called how the F am I normal? And I remember reading the sides and just immediately understanding the character. Um, I think that was a big part of why I was frustrated trying to get into acting or being told that I need to do that to make music work was I would look at these characters and I'm like, I don't relate to a lot of these. I don't know how to like become a different person. Like I can't pull a Meryl Streep and like fully be a different (laughs) human being. Um, And so to have Erica be a character that while I don't have any siblings, I'm able to tap into like that sassy older sister mentality, I guess. And I just understood how to play her. So I put it on tape and I want to say a week later, I got the call from my agent that I needed to come in for um, the actual like callback audition. I did maybe two, three callback auditions and then a screen test. It was my first screen test ever. I was terrified because I was in the room, the waiting room with the two other girls that I was like going up against, both of whom I recognized from major like Disney Channel projects. So I'm like, I'm not getting this part. Like, (laughs) there's no way. Um, And then I went in there and and just did my thing and left it up to the universe. And then I got the call that I, I booked it. So it, I'm, I didn't think at the time, you know, you get told you're going to come in and film the pilot. But then there's no guarantee after that. So I don't think if you would have told 19-year-old me, like, hey, you're going to be working on this when you're in your late 20s. Like, I don't think I would have believed anyone. Um, But so incredibly grateful to the show because it's given me everything in my life. I wonder if when you were in that room and you saw the other two actresses, did it kind of take the pressure off when you, when you decided that they were going to be the ones who were selected? I think in a way, but there was also knowing myself, I am competitive that maybe there was a little fire lit in me. That's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Like (laughs) I'm going to give it my everything, even though I'm absolutely terrified because I'm in this small room with, major executives of a huge network and the casting director and even the director, like one of the reasons this project felt so um, serendipitous in a way was there's like very few people and projects that I really admire. And I love comedy and bridesmaids was one of my favorite 
is one of my favorite comedies of all time. And to know that Wendy McLennan Covey was the only one cast at the time as the mom, I'm like, that was fueling a fire in me, like wanting to work with her. And then Seth Gordon, who is a producer, but at the time, the director of the pilot, um, he was the director of uh, Horrible Bosses, which was my other favorite comedy. And so I'm like, I have to get this role. Like these are, this is like the spot, the kind of comedy I want to be involved in. Um, so it, it was just all fueling, I think, whatever I was doing in that room. We'll be back with more from Haley Arantia after these messages. We're back with more from Haley Arantia on everything Fab Four. I got to ask because um, he's been one of my favorites since, and I'll be dating myself here, the 1970s, but mm-hmm. George Siegel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've uh, always adored. I, in fact, I I got to see him once in the West End in London in a three man show. And of course, you know, he absolutely sizzled. Uh, (laughs) What was it? Tell me about meeting him and working with him. I mean, getting to meet him on the pilot was so cool. And knowing that like my mom was also freaking out. She's like, you don't even know Haley, how like iconic this person is. And she was right. I mean, I was 19 years old. I didn't really know a ton of George's work prior, but I obviously knew that he was like a legend in the film. And so to be able to work with him for that was so cool. And then over the years, like I just got to spend so much time with him and hear some incredible stories and, to also watch him work the way that he worked and how he had so much respect for the craft and um, the culture of being on set. He was just such a professional and such a class act, but also always brought so much humor and like lightheartedness to the workday. And um, I mean, I, I really can't say a bad thing about him. It's he just, it was always so special to be able to be in a scene with him, especially whenever I, there were a couple times I got to be in a scene with him where he would play his banjo or I got to like be a part of any musical thing he was doing because there's very few um, musically inclined people that work on the Goldbergs and to be able to share that with him was really special. And he could legit play, right? Oh my gosh. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, interview of him. I think it was on Johnny Carson where he bought out his, his banjo I and mean, he's been playing forever and he can really play. Um, and he, I guess would go home and, you know, play at home. And that's the one thing about George Siegel that I, to this day, it kills me that I don't know, but I always wanted to know, like, what does he do when he's not at work? Like, yeah, you know, we're all certain people when we come to work, but like, what do you do at home? Like, I want to know a day in the life of George Siegel. And so I would ask him like, what do you do? Do you read a book? Do you watch like a specific favorite show? I know that he loved smoking cigars. Um, but like, what does your day look like? And he would always look at me and smirk and laugh and then walk away. And so (laughs) I'm like, it's forever a mystery to me, like who George Siegel is behind the scenes. But like, he, (laughs) he was just was such a character. I, I used to, uh, again, I, I adored him early on when I was very young in, in the seventies and I would watch his movies, probably some that I shouldn't have watched. Right. But, <laughs> um, he was such a great, um, wise cracker. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I, 
I couldn't understand why he didn't have like a bigger movie career in the eighties when you had so many other people who were sort of doing the same shtick, but not as well. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he does it a fantastic job. And, um, especially in the, uh, yeah, the eighties, I feel like he did, he definitely worked on some stuff, but I hear what you're saying. I think that overall he's, he was just consistent in the best way possible. Like he, even in his what mid to late eighties, he was coming on set and always just knocking it out of the park. Like can immediately turn on that switch and just like be in it. And it was, it was such a gift to be around. Well, I mean, of course he had a great career. You know, I, I don't mean to diminish him. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. In, I mean, he was in, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, right? Yes. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, we, we would all trade for that experience. I'm just so glad to hear it from, from your memories because oh, yeah. he was just always somebody uh, who I, I connected with. Um, I think maybe it's because, maybe it's because I'm a wisecracker. Maybe. So, obviously this is a Beatles show. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we talked about Maybe I'm Amazed, which is really, of course, a McCartney solo um, uh, performance from his, his, first, his debut solo album. What can you tell me about when you first discovered the Beatles? Yeah. Um, I'm slightly embarrassed to say the way I was introduced to it, because I, I will tell you, honestly, I don't know, I'm not a Beatles expert by any means, but the beauty of their history, their career and their story is there's like so much to dissect that I feel like I'm constantly learning something new or gaining new perspective because of their music that, um, I, lo- I just, I really genuinely love them. But my first experience that I can recall being introduced to them was actually from the Lindsay Lohan version of The Parent Trap. There's a scene where she's driving through the city of London on her way to meet her mom for the first time. And they're playing Here Comes the Sun. And I, I don't know why that specific scene and that song tied in with that scene was always so it just stuck with me and I think it's because the song itself just captures a feeling and I think that the film did a great job in that moment of capturing like the the um sort of like mystery of a new city but the excitement and the lightheartedness of it and I just remember that that visual of it that like the whole immersiveness of that moment um, it always stuck with me. And I don't think I even knew at the time that I saw it that I was like hearing the Beatles. <laughs> so uh, that's to my recollection the first time I was introduced to them. And, and it, I know the scene well, and there's a there's an emotional component to that scene that the song complements. Yes, absolutely. And it, I guess you look for that, right? When you're covering any song, you try to find the way you're going to communicate some kind of emotional experience. Definitely. And I think a lot of, and maybe it's my generation, I think we make a lot of jokes about it, is like when we would put on our headphones and listen to music in the backseat of the car and look out the window and picture like a music video in our heads. Like I grew up doing that and my parents used to get so frustrated by 
me always having my headphones in and not contributing to the conversation, but it's because I was like visualizing a dream world where the song would compliment. And I think that that scene captured exactly what that feeling was for me. And that song obviously being a big part of that. Um, and I think, I don't know, that's but a lot of the, as I think back on Beatles music and my first introduction to them and a series of their songs was mostly through how it was incorporated into television and film. Um, like the movie Across the Universe was a huge um, experience for me to like get into the Beatles. As silly as that is, because obviously the Beatles are so iconic on their own, but my parents didn't actually play a lot of it growing up. So I didn't know a ton of their stuff. It was truly through film that I was able to discover a lot of their music. Well, and I'm and I'm not a first generation fan either. So you're mm. you know, at least a generation beyond me. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting about that is everybody gets to discover them on their own terms, right? Yeah. Each generation will own them uh, in their own in their own way. I was just reading a quote from George Harrison today where he said, "You know, the Beatles don't belong to us anymore. You know, mm-hmm. when we're dead." The Beatles still exist. That has nothing to do with the the people who were alive. Obviously, mm-hmm. they made it, but it exists outside of them. And they're elastic enough where, like you described with that that wonderful scene in the Parent Trap, it brings that scene to life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't need them, perf- you know, to be there to do that. It exists outside of their story. Is there a particular album, for example, of the Beatles that you come back to? Oh yeah, I mean. <sighs> That's so hard. I really, <laughs> I really love Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I, that like something about that era of music for them, I think really inspires me. Um, probably because I struggle a lot with feeling like as an artist, I need to pick a lane and pick a genre and stick with it. And I think that they break so many like boundaries for what, like a normal format for music or a song is supposed to be. And they are, uh, they allowed themselves to be so open and, and free to any form of inspiration or any kind of like way of interpreting a song that um, it, it definitely inspires me to like, let go a little bit of whatever that like format is supposed to be in my mind. And, the algorithm of how a song works and, and just allow it to be a feeling. And for me, like that album, even magical mystery tour, like those, that era is probably my favorite. It's the second time you've mentioned the issue of, of needing to stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, I think that maybe not staying in your lane is the authentic you in a way. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of, I mean, I, I think you, as you said, audiences can sense, inauthenticity, um, I wouldn't give that up. And the Beatles are a great example. I mean, Sgt. Pepper, you have Within You, Without You, which is founded on Eastern classical music. You have One 64 which is a vaudeville dance song. (laughs) And then you have Lovely Rita, which is unlike anything ever made, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they're, they're constantly defying genre and convention. Yeah, I think that's why... I, I really genuinely love them. And, and I think they were my first and kind of always have been the major sort of example for, 
for being able to say, screw what the label says, what the business side of things says, because that's really where a lot of the challenges it's it's outside influence saying like hey if you stray away from what's working then you're gonna lose money you're gonna lose me money or and and they can only think about it from that scenario whereas the artists themselves and like the beatles were able to just like dive in and it's it's about a feeling and it's and going off of a feeling um that's the most important part of it and whether or not you lose some people along the way like that's their own journey but you're going to connect with a lot more um and it's and i think life like as we go through life we experience so many different things as they say you're not the, the same person from the beginning that you are to the end and so i think it's very similar within music being able to kind of represent whatever phase of life you're in sonically um, it's it's going to change and be open to that change. It can be frustrating, right? Life is all about these org- organizing principles. Look what we do to our students when they start college and they have to answer the question, what's your major? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and all it does is create all sorts of angst, you know, like they have to do the same thing uh, from age 18 until, you know, they slip into retirement or something. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to know what it's supposed to look like forever, but it's, it's such a does such a disservice to art. I think if you keep that kind of mentality. So when you when you hear from folks who um, when you hear from folks who've been inspired by you, what what are the sort of things that connect with you the most and touch your heart? Mm. Um, I mean, for me, I'm such a big lyricist or I I focus a lot on the lyrics that when I meet someone and hear from them that that something I wrote resonated with them on a lyrical sense like that it's just so validating I think because in a lot of ways I feel very alone in my experience I think that growing up being the girl in my school that would like do on her extra curricular time go perform at festivals and like travel to LA to audition like that was so not what anyone else was doing so I've always kind of had this feeling of like I like no one understands me or like I no one can relate so when I'm able to like capture that in a song and and express how I'm feeling authentically in a musical form and that actually resonates with someone it I think young me feels very validated to be able to be like, okay, we're not alone. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that to me is always what really resonates the most. Oh, that's very cool. I, I love your mention of across the universe, which, you know, really it is a jukebox musical, right? Where yes. They're strapping a story onto Beatles songs, but um, I mean, from the moment, that the the one actor is singing girl at the beginning through all of those songs. I, I find it really compelling. And I know a lot of my students, that was their way into the Beatles. Mm-hmm. That was a big one for me. I, I think that it, they just did such a great job of like, I mean, obviously the, each Beatles song is about something completely different, but I think they did such a good job of being able to incorporate a wide variety of their songs in this, wild story um it's visual it's like but it is also a feeling in a way 
I just, that movie to me really resonated and it opened my eyes to a lot of Beatles music that I had never really known before. One in particular in that movie that always stood out to me, maybe because it was in my vocal range and hearing a girl sing it really like clicked was I want to hold your hand. And I think that scene was done in such a beautiful way because it was actually one of my first introductions to an LGBTQ character in television and film. Um, being able to see it portrayed in that way, I think was really special and eye-opening. And um, that movie, I just, as much as I feel like, the, I have talked to some major Beatles fans and I feel like they don't like that movie. Um, but to me, it, it was my introduction and I'm, it'll always like hold a place in my heart. Yeah, I, I, I can't take the haters on that one. You know, it's <laughs> the Beatles music is elastic. It can, it can withstand just about anything. Oh, like yeah. you said, it can be interpreted in a wide range of ways. And that scene touched me too. I remember vividly, and I play that recording every now and then um, of I Want to Hold Your Hand because mm -hmm. it communicated joy so well. Yeah. And that's tough to communicate without it coming off schlocky, right? Yes, definitely. It just, it really, she, the singer really nailed it. And um, like I said, it's elastic music. It can take it. So what's next for you? Um, perhaps another 10 years of the Goldbergs. Perhaps. <laughs> There'll be a lot of interpretation. Um, I mean, I, I'm open to anything. And I, I, I'm not sure if we're going to go another year or not. I think that's something that's being talked about right now. I mean, we're in our 10th season. For me personally, I love the show. I love the people I work with and... I constantly say like, I'm going to need to find a really good therapist whenever we wrap this show, because I've only ever known Los Angeles or, you know, my twenties with these people and to fathom a world where I'm not going into work every day and seeing them is going to be very hard. But I'm also at a phase in my life where I'm ready to, weighed in in the sort of not knowing what's next and not being so sure that there's another season coming i think that as you know i have a lot of friends that are seeing the experiencing the downside of the industry where you don't know where your next job is coming from and it's incredibly stressful so i don't want to like you know this is my privilege talking of like being on a show for 10 years but i think that on a personal level i would really benefit from being able to like not know what's next and and as an artist maybe focusing on my music for once and being inspired by that sort of in between um I, I just I'm ready for like that next kind of opportunity and while I want to continue acting I have a lot of other things I want to pursue including producing I want to get into creating my own stuff and working behind the camera a lot more um and so being able to have time for that would be really special but I'm definitely open to like whatever the universe is going to bring. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980's The Last Days in the Life and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. 
The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.